You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, right now, though, let's jump into a Bible study, and uh, we are burning the clock. Uh, we've got communion table set, and we'll prepare our hearts for that as well. If you need a Bible, the ushers will be in the aisle, and you will enjoy the study so much more with a Bible in your hand. And you're going to want to find your way to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. Uh, we're going through the Bible verse by verse. And uh, that's uh, what we do here at the Mission Church on Sunday mornings. We study the Bible verse by verse. And uh, right now we're in uh, the, coming to the end of Jesus' life. It is Thursday in our story right now. He's going to be crucified on Friday. So his death is imminent. It's at hand. It's one day away. And uh, the title of the message is The Last Supper. The Uncaused Love of Jesus. Uh, Amazing to consider that God's love is uncaused by us. You have never experienced a love like that. Human love is reciprocal, where we get something from it and we give something and it's mutual. God's love is uncaused by us. It is all initiated by him. Uh, he, He gets... He doesn't love us for what he can get out of us. He doesn't love us because we have something that he really needs. He doesn't love us because he's lonely. He doesn't love us because he needs companionship. He, his love for us is uncaused by us. And here Jesus, knowing that his death is at hand, he's going to the cross tomorrow. Today's Thursday. He's going to the cross on Friday. He takes the disciples and he brings them into an upper room and Luke's gospel would tell us, he says these words, with fervent desire, I have desired to have this last supper with you. And he gets down on one knee and he girds himself with a towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And he tells them, what I'm doing now you do not understand. Uh, they couldn't grasp that he was going to the cross. They couldn't grasp that he was going to be crucified, murdered. They thought he was going to set up his kingdom. It was just, even though he had told them repeatedly, it did not fit their paradigm. It didn't fit their worldview. And they had a hard time grasping it. And so they were not able to fully understand. But Jesus knew this. He said, with fervent desire, I've wanted to have this last supper meal with me. Because this I know. That after these things happen, you will understand my great and uncaused love for you. After my resurrection, you'll know that I am God. And you will know that God left heaven and became a man. And you had a meal with him. And he girded himself with his towel as a servant and washed your feet. And you will be, oh my gosh, we had dinner with the creator of the universe. And you'll know my great love for you. I think it is pretty hard for us to even begin to fathom God's uncaused love. Uh, uh, it's really like nothing we see here on earth. Uh, 
Maybe the best example we could imagine would be that of a parent and a child, who that when a child is born, even though the child has done nothing, there is this uncaused love that the parent has for a child. I'm really happy to announce, by the way, that on the 21st, uh, we had our grandson come into the world. <laughs> Lisa and our first grandson, his name is Owen Richard Menard, and I am so honored because I am David Richard Menard, and uh, what a what a just amazingly beautiful little boy he is, nine pounds, a uh, big baby, which is amazing. I'm calling Lauren, my daughter-in-law, I'm calling her Houdini, uh, calling her Houdini, because she only gained eight pounds, and she had a nine-pound baby. Uh, uh, I don't mean literally, but practically, and... Uh, uh, just amazing. Anyway, mom and baby are doing well. Long labor, but mom and baby are doing well. And it's so much fun to see your son become a father. I just like, oh my gosh. I just that part uh, was a surprise blessing. I'm like, oh, so good. But I, I, this child, before he ever came into the world, I already loved him. And having come in the world, he's done nothing, and yet I love him. And we get a glimpse of uncaused love there, but may I say that is only a small sliver uh, compared to the God's uncaused love for us that is on steroids in comparison. And uh, here Jesus brings the disciples, moving them towards the last day of his life and very well planned and very well uh, thought out of exactly what he wanted to do. The scripture says those who he loved, speaking of Jesus, those who he loved he loved to the very end. Here the, the last day of his life. And what he's doing is girding himself as a servant. Serving them. Washing their feet. And having a meal with them. Uh, with that, let's jump in. Matthew 26. We're picking up right where we left off last week. Verse 14. If you're there, hold your finger on it and give me a big amen. amen. Matthew 26, 14. Uh, here we go. Then one of the twelve called Judas, uh, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him, if I deliver Jesus to you? And they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver, about four months worth of wages, not much at all. And they gave them those 30 pieces of silver. And verse 16 tells us, so from that time on, he, Judas, sought an opportunity to betray him, Jesus. Uh, amazing. Here we see, right out of the gate, as we prepare to enter into the Last Supper, the setting for the Last Supper is that Judas betrays Jesus to Israel's corrupt and jealous religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. What a betrayal. Uh, the average Joe would have no audience with Israel's elite religious leaders. They were not available to the common person. Uh, but the religious leaders were thrilled and amazed to have one of Jesus' own disciples come to them and help them in their cause of wanting to murder Jesus. And I'm sure they were shocked and thrilled that... Uh, the, you know, one of Jesus, Judas would come to them to betray him. And so they gladly doled out 30 pieces of silver to Judas. Uh, yeah, no problem. Here you go. I'm sure they would have paid a hundred times more. 
And uh, 30 pieces of silver, by the way, was not a random number. It was foretold by God. For one, uh, it was the amount in the Bible of a gourd servant. If you had an employee and they were working in the field, tilling the crops for you, tilling the soil, and your bull or your ox gets mad and goes wild and gores a servant, you would have to give 30 pieces of silver as restitution for a gored servant. Here's a verse for you, Exodus 21 on your screens. Uh, this is verse 32. Let me hear you read this out loud. If the ox gores a male or female servant, he shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and the ox shall be stoned. Just a good rule, right? Hey, if someone gets gored, give them four months wages and kill that ox. Uh, just a good solid rule. Uh, I was preparing for the message this week and on Wednesday for summer nights, JC was making donut hangers for the kids to eat donuts in a donut eating comp, you know, dangling donuts on a string. And uh, he, with a saw, he chopped off part of his finger. Uh, oh, that's, that's me. I said that too strongly. He, he nipped the, the, the part of his finger. He's going to be okay. He didn't lose a digit. But it's bad. I mean, he hit, hit it with a saw. And so he had to go to the, the hospital room. And, and uh, I was so blessed. Isaac just rises to the occasion. One of the leaders here in, in, our, in the ministry when, you know, takes over and does... And, uh, but I was reading this, and I thought, wow, I mean, God has some good laws here. And, and uh, I had to say, hey, JC, if you incur any cost in this, uh, we'll take care of it, right? It's because uh, that's God's will right there. He sets these good, these good rules in place, right? Uh, what's interesting, uh, that was the, the penalty for an employee, for someone working in your field. If you had an ox or a bull, and it just gores somebody walking by, uh, guess what? No penalty. Uh, look, what the, the, look, look at what the Bible says. Uh, this is Exodus 21, 28. If, read this with me. If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, then the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be acquitted. Yeah, it was just a mistake. And yeah, that animal needs to be put down and don't eat it. You don't get a barbecue out of this. Uh, the animal gets put down. But hey, things happen. And, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, no punishment for that person. Uh, God's very reasonable, good civil laws. But uh, it's interesting. We see, you know, we see OSHA in the Old Testament, right? I mean, there's great civil laws taking care of employees and those kind of things. Amazing. What's, what's really interesting is if there was a foreknowledge, if you knew that an ox had done this before, oh, then it was an entirely different. Look what the Bible says about this. This is Exodus 21, 29. But read with me. If the ox tended to thrust with its horns in times past. If it's been a little unruly, right? And if it's been made, to its, made known to its owner and he has not kept it confined so that now it has killed a man or a woman, that ox shall be stoned. And look at this, read it out loud. And its owner shall be put to death. Wow, God's very serious. Yeah, life is sacred. And if you've got an ox and you knew it was like unruly and you let someone be near it, well, that's, 
on you. And so you'd be super careful, right? Super careful. And all that to say, the Bible has profound civil laws. God cares about your well-being. And these laws, if you look at history, they were virtually light years ahead of any of the laws that the, the pagan nations had in the world at that time, where there were just crazy and bizarre laws of like, uh, yeah, you eat the eyes of, uh, of your, your uh, you know, the person who wronged you or that you... Uh, human sacrifice, or you drink their blood. I mean, like weird stuff. Here the Bible had civil laws that were just light years ahead of society. And the Bible is wise, and it respects life. And uh, uh, here, important to see. But the reason I took you to these scriptures was to show you that the price that was valued for Jesus was the price of a gourd slave. Hard to fathom. Hard to fathom. Just beyond comprehension. And the book of Zechariah gives an interesting prophecy. Uh, the book of Zechariah, by the way, written 635 years before Jesus. Look at this prophecy about the Messiah in the book of Zechariah. Uh, let me hear you read this. I said to them, if you like, give me my wages, whatever I am worth, but only if you want to. So they counted out for me my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Yeah, God uh, acting out the future in a little roll of drama there uh, says, hey, this is, and the prophet says, give me my wages. What do, you, what do you think I'm worth? And they gave a measly 30 pieces of silver. And look what God says about this. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. This magnificent sum at which they valued me. So I took the 30 coins and threw them in the temple of the Lord for the potter. This is sarcasm on God's part. He's saying, unbelievable. The creator of the universe becomes a man. He comes to purchase our salvation. God becomes flesh. And we make no room for him, and he's born in an animal trough. And we esteem him not his entire life. He was despised and rejected by men. And at the end of his life, he is sold for a measly 30 pieces of silver, the price of a gourd slave. And God says... Throw it to the potter, this magnificent sum at which they valued me. Wow. And look what he says. So I took the 30 coins and I threw them in the temple of the Lord for the potter. And amazingly, that's exactly what happened in Scripture. Judas betrays Jesus. He gets 30 pieces of silver. Afterwards, he sees Jesus beaten and flayed open with the cat of nine tails and sees that he's going to be crucified and he says, I betrayed innocent blood. He goes back to the chief priest and says, oh, I've made a horrible mistake. This man is innocent. I've betrayed him. And the religious leaders say, what is that to us? We don't give a rip. And so Judas throws the money in the temple at their feet. 
And the religious leaders pick up the money and they say, well, what do we do with it? We can't use it. We can't put it back in the temple treasury because it's blood money. Uh, we're so self-righteous. We're so righteous. We can't use this money that we killed the Messiah with. To... So they buy a potter's field. A potter's field was a place where the potter would throw all the pot shards, the broken pots. They're sharp and jagged and they're all over the ground. They don't decompose and so the land is worth nothing and they get this cheap field that they use with the 40 pieces, excuse me, with the 30 pieces of silver. Wow, interesting, amazing. By the way, this prophecy uh, from Zechariah, 635 BC, the very next prophecy that Zechariah gives is about the next false messiah that will come, the Antichrist, and him, Israel, will receive. Uh, you might want to study it later on your own. So just amazing to consider. This is exactly what happened. And uh, it leads us to an interesting question, doesn't it? Why did Judas betray Jesus? What was his motive? What was he hoping to gain? Let me hear from you. I'd like to hear some of your thoughts. What was Judas's motive in betraying Jesus? What did he want? Let me hear you out loud. Money, notoriety, what else? It's interesting, isn't it? What was he hoping to gain? If it was money, and there's no doubt he loved money, John 12 tells us that he was the keeper of the bag. And he would often skim off the top of it. Hey, I need a new Apple Watch. I'm going to take a few bucks. And, and uh, he would skim off the top. So he definitely loved money. But if it was for money, he probably could have got a lot more. And secondly, what did he do with the money? Well, if it was for the money, would he have thrown it back at their feet? What was Judas's motive? Maybe. The Bible doesn't tell us for sure, and this is somewhat speculation, uh, so take it and just meditate on it yourself. You need to be a Berean and you need to consider these things on, your, on yourself. I have given great thought to this question over the years. Do you know why? Because there's a little bit of Judas in me. And I have given great thought to this question. What was Judas's motive? May I present to you, you can decide for yourself, be a Berean. Everything else we'll talk today is not open for debate. It's the word of God. This is open. You can decide for yourself. May I present to you that Judas believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was with Jesus for three and a half years. He heard his profound teaching. No one ever spoke like this. Such life-giving words. When he spoke, your soul was moved to the core. He saw Jesus give sight to the blind. He saw Jesus rise, take lepers, uh, excuse me, take the lame and tell them to rise up and walk. And they walked. He saw Jesus heal lepers who had a, a stage four cancer, cancer terminal diagnosis, right? Leprosy. And say, hey, be clean. And their leprosy would be removed instantly. He saw Jesus cast demons out with a word. 
He saw Jesus calm a storm, of the storm raging, experienced fishermen, afraid, afraid that their life was over, they were going to drown, the storm was so violent, the seas were so rough. And he saw Jesus with just a few words say, peace, be still, and all of nature obeys him, and a turbulent, violent sea becomes calm and peaceful. He saw all this. I believe Judas knew Jesus was the Messiah. Why then did he betray him? What was he hoping to gain? May I present to you, I believe Judas was trying to force Jesus' hand. That he got tired of following Jesus, this homeless guy who had no position of power or authority seemingly on this earth. Uh, just a homeless guy, he got tired of the vagabond lifestyle. And knowing he was the Messiah, said, I'm going to betray him. The religious leaders are going to arrest him and he is going to have to pull off his Superman shirt and show that he is the Messiah in power and I'm going to force his hand. Why would he do that? Here's why. Because he wanted to rule and reign with the Messiah. He wanted to be one of the 12 who was ruling over the entire earth, which the Bible says Jesus will do. It'll happen at a second coming. And the parallel would be, it's like him wanting to be a 12th owner of Amazon. Uh, that's a pretty powerful position. And it's about this big in comparison to the messianic kingdom that is coming. And so he thought, I will force Jesus to set up his throne, to set up his kingdom, and then I will be sitting at the right hand. It's going to be amazing. He'll never know I did it. It'll just look like circumstance, and his kingdom will come. And here's the issue. Jesus was not Lord of Judas's life. Judas was Lord of his life. Interesting. Interesting, he was following for selfish reasons. I want you to know, he was following for personal gain. I want you to know that tremendous personal gain comes from following Jesus. But that is not the reason that we follow Jesus. Uh, Jesus himself uh, has to be our end goal. We follow Jesus for Jesus himself. We don't follow Jesus for any other reason. Jesus is actually our end goal. We don't follow Jesus to have a better life. We don't follow Jesus to be blessed. We don't follow Jesus for any of these things. We follow Jesus for Jesus' sake because he is worthy. He is amazing. He, there is none like him. Uh, my life has been incredibly blessed the 30-something years that I have followed Jesus. I look at it and I can't believe it. All I can say is surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And then when I die at the end, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I mean, he's amazing. My life has been incredibly enriched by following Jesus. I have a marriage. Last Sunday, I celebrated my 35th wedding anniversary. 
I wasn't fishing for a compliment, but it's okay. Come on. Uh, uh, no, 35 years. Of, and may I just say, 35 years of amazing marriage of wonderful marriage, of something that I could have never attained on my own. I would have destroyed my marriage if it wasn't for Jesus. I would have cheated on my wife. I would have ruined my family. I would have destroyed it all. But because of God's word, because of God's uh, input in my life, because of his wisdom, I have an amazing marriage. Not only that, but a family. All the joy to see now my son becoming a father and watching him hold that and watching the wisdom with which he lives his life, and all of my kids, and, and I look at Ryan, uh, the one who just had the, the boy, and he's a leader in the church. He leads a mission group here at the church. He's a leader in men's ministry, leads one of our men's groups, plays on the worship team all the time. Nathan, my son, playing piano today. My daughter, Mariah, a leader in the young adults ministry, doing all, all my kids serving here at the church. Just amazing, right? And all kinds of riches, my cup overflows. And I'm not boasting in myself. Not at all. I hope it doesn't sound that way. This is God's inheritance to all his children. Uh, not only is my personal life that way, but I look at now each of you, my church family. I'm in awe at the way that you love. I love nothing more than spending time with you. Wednesday, we did summer nights. And uh, as I mentioned, JC chopped off a piece of his finger and he was in the hospital room and it made a last minute switcheroo and Isaac grows to the occasion and just started leading everything. And I was sat back and I just, so amazing to watch him lead. I look at all of you, the, this, this, this orphanage and everything taken in just one service and you guys, you're just amazing. The love that I receive from you. And afterwards, on uh, summer nights this Wednesday, we're at the park, you know, uh, hundreds of us out there just having a great time. And after it's over, it's cleanup, right? And uh, JC's not around. And, and so I start putting all the stuff in my truck. And uh, next thing I know, all, you know, all the leaders are there. and They're just helping load up. And, and I didn't say a word. And I drove back here to the church. It's 930 at night. Uh, we've had kids games going on all week, been a busy week, you know, and it's nine, nine, nine thirty at night. And before I could park my truck, an army of leaders just pulls into the parking lot. And before I get out of my truck, they're already taking things out of the back of the truck. Bunch of young adult leaders. And those of you who are here, you have no idea how much you blessed me that night. And we sat around and we talked and it's late, man. And, and so most of these guys, a lot of these guys were serving in kids games all week long on top of it. And they're in there, we're in there in the fellowship hall and we're just talking. We start praying and each of them just starts saying these praises of how Jesus is impacting their life and how thankful they, they are for the teaching of the word in this church and for the things that Jesus is doing in this church. And, and we had this amazing time of fellowship and I left and I just thought, oh. Lord, I'm the richest man in the world. Church, I just want to tell you, I am so blessed that I get to be your pastor. I mean, so unworthy. Oh my gosh, you're amazing. And I left just going, and these are the incredible prosperity that comes to those who are following Jesus. But may I say, we do not follow for any of these things. We follow for him. Jesus himself is our end goal. And when we pursue him, all of these things come as a result. I've seen men in the church 
who only come to church because they're looking for what? A beautiful woman. And you're smart, a lot of beautiful women here, but you are not wise. That is not the right reason to come to church. And as a matter of fact, may I just say, if that's why you're here, bye-bye. There's the door. Wolf in sheep's clothing, get the heck out. I've seen musicians who play praise music, worship music. And they're amazingly talented, but they're only using the praise music as a platform to elevate their music career. May I say to you, bye-bye. We don't care how beautifully you sing or how beautifully you play. That's not why we worship. That's not why we play. I've seen those who give because they want to get and they read passages like Proverbs chapter 3 that says, Honor the Lord with the first fruits of your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase, so that your barns will be full, filled to the plenty, so that your vats will overflow with abundance. And they read that verse and they go, Yeah, I'm going to give. May I say to you, Keep your money. Wrong reason. Yes, it's absolutely true, but that's not the reason we give. We give because he is worthy. We give because we realize everything we have just comes from him. And I'm only giving back to him what is already his own. And he commands me to do it so that I don't make money my first love because the love of money will destroy me. And I'll be selfish and I'll be greedy. And my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. I can't even know it. And so God tells me, put him first in money so that uh, he is first in my life. And when you do, oh, I'll bless you. You can't outgive God. Uh, it's not even possible. We've never even taken an offering here at this church. And God provides everything we ever need. But we don't give for that reason. We give because he himself is our end goal. He himself is our total pursuit. And these things all just flow out of the abundance of what he gives to us. He's amazing. We give to honor him, to put him first in our life because he's faithful. Uh, men, would you want to go on a date with a woman who was only dating you because she wanted a free meal? She didn't care about you at all? Some guys are like, that'd be all right. Yep. <laughs> But that's not real love. And God is looking for us to understand his great love for us. That we might respond with just going, Lord, there's none like you. And love him back. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, uh, Labor not for the things of the world. What you should eat, what you should drink, what you should wear. For all of these things... The unbelievers seek after. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness? Yeah, the righteousness of God that could never be obtained. 
the righteousness of God that can only be given to you as a free gift when you understand his great love for you and what he did for you on the cross. Seek that first, his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. God knows you need a wife. God knows you need a wife. Uh, God knows you need a husband. God knows you need a roof over your head. But seek him first. Don't seek him for these things. Seek him for him. And all these things will be added unto you. Whatever Judas's motives were for following Jesus, this I know for sure, it wasn't for Jesus. It was for something else. It was for himself. And because of that, Judas lost sight of God's great love for him. Jesus lost sight of Jesus' love to know him. Jesus, excuse me, Judas lost sight of that. Judas lost sight of the lordship of Jesus Christ. He never had it. And oh, look how he missed out. He was going for a kingdom. What did he receive? Eternal separation. But those who were pursuing Jesus for Jesus, the disciples, what do they inherit? Oh, a kingdom and then some. Oh my gosh. Uh, may we not be like Judas, uh, following Jesus for the wrong reasons. Instead, may we follow him to know him. He is amazing. And when we experienced his uncaused love for us, uh, our heart is changed forever. Uh, the disciples, uh, Jesus came to them one day and after, after a difficult situation, he says, hey, look, do you guys want to leave me? Do you guys want to leave? And they all said, Lord, where else could we go? You alone have the words of abundant life. You alone are the one who speaks and our soul is filled to overflowing. You alone are the source of all wisdom and discernment and love itself. Lord, where else could we go? We want to be with you. And for that, uh, there is great, great reward. So amazingly, all of this was foretold in the Bible. This betrayal of the Messiah. What would happen to the Messiah? Being sold for even 30 pieces of silver. And what would happen to those 30 pieces of silver? They'd be used to buy a potter. All of it was foretold. And you say, well, how in the world can that be? How can all that be foretold? Well, two things. Number one, God is sovereign over all things. And secondly, your salvation, your redemption was planned out when? Before the foundation of the earth. God already planned it out and knew the story and wrote it before you were even created. Uh, uh, little Owen, uh, uh, he did nothing to receive our, our love and it's uncaused by him. And again, what a pale comparison to God's great love for us. Uh, our salvation planned out before the beginning of time. We can trust the Bible. And even when gross evil happens, God is able to take it and to use it for good. No wonder the scripture would say, that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God is able to take even the most heinous things and use them for his, his great glory. Uh, I have a quote by John MacArthur uh, that I would like you to read. Uh, it's, it's concise and powerful. Let me hear you read this. Through man's ultimate act of sinful depravity, 
God accomplished his ultimate act of righteous redemption. So amazing. So amazing. Uh, through man's ultimate act of selfish depravity. Look how deprived we are. God accomplished his ultimate act of redemption. Great, great phrase. Well, let's look on. We're going to see Jesus, even when all this betrayal is going on, leading us to the Last Supper. Look at verse 17. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus. This is actually Thursday. Uh, Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday, on Good Friday. This is actually Thursday, the day before Passover, the preparation day. They came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? Uh, Luke's gospel is going to tell us specifically, this is only Peter and John that, uh, that asked Jesus this question. And Jesus says to Peter and John, verse 18, go into the city, that's Jerusalem, to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. Yes, this time that was planned before the foundation of the earth. My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Uh, you know what? Luke's gospel tells it so much better. Let's look at Luke's gospel and see what it says on this, on the screens. Well, let me hear you read with me. And he, that's Jesus, sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? Well, let's pause there for a minute. By the way, at Passover, every Jew was required to go to, to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem during Passover. And uh, when they were there, Josephus the historian tells us there were between two and three million Jews there at Passover on, on this particular Passover with Jesus. Uh, they would offer so many lambs they would, that there were 250,000 lambs would be offered. Uh, the whole uh, brook of Kedron would just be filled with lamb's blood flowing from the temple, right? Uh, just amazing. And they asked him, they said, where do you want us to prepare a place for Passover? Pretty hard to get a room right now, Jesus. <laughs> Two, three million people coming in. All the hotels were booked. Where in the world do you want us to get a room to have a Passover meal? Well, hard to come by. Uh, and look what Jesus says. Verse 10. And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, that's the city of Jerusalem, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat Passover with my disciples? Let's stop there just one second. Look what Jesus says. Follow him. You're going you're gonna to go into Jerusalem. Tons of people are going to be there. Okay, no problem. What's the address? No address. What do I look for? What do they look for? Look for a man carrying a pitcher of water on his head. By the way, very interesting. Who normally carried the water? Women. The women. And I find Jesus' ways so interesting. Look at who he always uses. Those who humble themselves and are servants. You want to see my work? I'll show you. Go find a man who is a servant of servants. And that's the man I will use. And so they go into Jerusalem. And let's see what happens. Uh, then he will show you a large furnished upper room. 
there make ready. So they went and they found it just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. They're like crazy. They're like into Jerusalem. People going everywhere. You can't get an Uber. It's like crazy. And they come in there and they're like, oh, how are we going to find this room? I mean, well, this is impossible. Why don't you just give us the address? And all of a sudden, sure enough, there's a dude. <laughs> and they go, hey, I know this sounds crazy, but the master needs need of, need of your place. No problem, come with me. And he takes him into this large room, very wealthy, well-prepared, well-furnished, and they go in there and they start preparing for the Passover. They go to the temple. They slaughter their animal. They give it as a sacrifice. 250,000 lambs being slaughtered in Jerusalem. And not one of them can cleanse a man of his sin. Not one of them can cleanse a man of a single sin. But the Lamb of God is coming in. And that one man will cleanse all men, not of one sin, but of all sin. Oh my gosh. Just amazing. Just amazing. And so they go and they find. And there it is. Just like they said. Let's come back to our our verse. Uh, We're in verse 19. So the disciples did just as Jesus had directed them. And they prepared the Passover. And when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. I told you this was on Thursday. Why are they having Passover on Thursday when Passover was on Friday that year? Here's why. Because the day starts when? At sundown on the Jewish calendar. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. And evening and morning were the first day. So we, have, we think the day starts in the morning. Uh, and not in the Jewish mind. The Jewish mind, it starts at sundown. And so they went and prepared. That was on Thursday. And now the sun goes down. And now it's Friday. It's Thursday night for us. Friday, mor- you know, Friday night, the beginning of Friday for them, however you would say it. Um, so verse 20. So when evening had come, it's now Passover. He sits down with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Pay attention to the word exceedingly. They were not just a little bit sorrowful. They were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them, every single one of them, began to say, Lord, is it I? What the heck? Every single one of them, Lord, is it I? And he answered, and he said, he who has dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. Just as it is written in the Bible from the beginning of time. This is what I told Adam and Eve about in the garden after they sinned. When God provided a lamb to sacrifice for them substitutionary atonement pointing towards the Messiah. This was what was written from the beginning of time. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man, the Messiah, is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Hell is real, by the way. Hell is eternal. And Jesus said it would be better to never be born than to be eternally separated from God. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, anguish, loneliness and despair, 
uh, when you're out of the presence of God. Verse 25, then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? Acting as if he doesn't know. And he said to him, you have said it. Interesting choice of words. Is this what you want, Judas? This what you want? This what you're after? You sure? Very interesting, isn't it? That each of the disciples, all 12 of them said, Lord, is it I? Why? Why? Why would each of the disciples say, Lord, is it I? Here's why. Because they all know how exceedingly sinful they are. They all know how prone they are to wander away from Jesus. They all know how prone they are to fall into incredible sin. They all know how quick they are to fall into lust, to fall into greed, to fall into uh, just, you know, bragging and boasting and being selfish. They all know how sinful they are. As a matter of fact, in just a moment, all of the disciples will deny Jesus and leave him. And they know how sinful they are. Christians are not perfect people. We are flawed sinners who have discovered how desperately selfish we are. And how desperately we need a savior for forgiveness of our sins. His name is Jesus. You see, the disciples were painfully aware of how selfish they were. They came in to that place. They came in to that upper room. And they saw it and they said, wow, this is nice. And you know what they all started vying for? Who had the best seat at the table? The Gospels would tell us that each of the disciples entered into that upper room and started arguing about which of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who should be sitting at the head of the table? This is nice, guys. This is what we've been waiting for. I think the kingdom's coming. I think I'm better than you, Peter. And Peter said, are you kidding me? You're a knucklehead. And And Jesus walks in with this kind of attitude, and it is then that he girds himself with a towel, drops down on his knees, and starts washing the disciples' feet. And their sin comes to the surface. Oh my gosh, we are so selfish. I didn't even acknowledge Jesus when I walked in. I wasn't even mindful. I should be washing his feet And all I was thinking about was my own greatness. And now Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And of course, all of them painfully aware of how selfish they are being in the presence of Jesus go, oh my gosh, is it me? We are prone to think we are pretty righteous. We're pretty amazing when we're comparing ourselves among ourselves. But the moment that we compare ourselves to the standard. When the moment we even come close to Jesus, the moment that we even consider God, we're painfully aware of how sinful we are. Amazing to consider. 
We're not perfect people. We're just flawed sinners who have discovered how wretched we really are and how badly we need a savior. Satan would love to put a guilt trip on us that we are supposed to be super righteous, super spiritual, super holy. And we kind of like that idea because we're so selfish. Yeah, look how spiritual I am. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I cast out that demon. And I live. And the word of the Lord. And God told me. And you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What? What? Yeah, we kind of like the idea of elevating ourselves and being super spiritual. You talk to some people and it's they're like, yeah, God told me and I was going to turn right. And he said, no, turn left. And then right there, it happened. The Red Sea part. I'm like, wow. I mean, I'm not like you, man. I live by faith. I don't have that happening to me. You must be super spiritual. Well, I fast every, you know, all once a week. <laughs> and I wake up at five. crazy. We're sinners. Beware of those who, press to, who profess to be so spiritual. Everywhere they go, it's hyper-spirituality, Christian lingo, commanding this and not, uh, ordering that, nauseating, nauseating. And I want you to know this. The mark of a genuine relationship with God is not hyper-spirituality, but humility but brokenness. The mark of real spirituality is, oh Lord, you are so righteous. And Lord, I know I'm such a sinner. I stand before you on Sunday mornings, not as one who's amazing, as one who is broken. I pray every Sunday for you. I pray and I say, Lord, have mercy on me. I do, I'm not worthy of teaching your word. But Lord, for your people's sake, will you please feed them? Will you please bless them? Will you please pour into them? Because of your great love for them, Lord, would you use my lips? Would you use my, my offering of what I've prepared? And, and it's God's goodness, right? Uh, the mark of a genuine relationship with God is not that we're so amazing and spiritual. The disciples just became radically aware of how sinful they are. Lord, is it I? Is it I? And when we are in the presence of a holy God who washes our feet, we realize that our righteousness is like filthy rags. And all we can do is just fall at his feet and say, Lord, you're amazing. You're amazing. Uh, and then we realize how radically broken we are and how desperately we need a Savior. Something very interesting, by the way, all of the disciples said what? What did they say? Before that, what did they say? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Kyrios is the Greek. It means master. It means my boss. It means my authority. Boss, is it I? Lord, is it? All of the disciples said that except one. What did Judas say? Rabbi. Not Lord, but teacher. Not submitting himself to the lordship of Jesus, just viewing him as a good teacher. Not submitting his life to his lordship, 
just being impressed with his teaching ability. Uh, dangerous, dangerous. The Bible says that no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Here's what that does not mean. It doesn't mean you can't say these words, Jesus is Lord. Anybody can say that. Anything can say that. But nobody can say Jesus is Lord of my life and have it be true unless you're being led by the Spirit. Judas is not willing to, to allow that to happen in his life. He is calling the shots. He wants to be his own Lord. And it's a dangerous place to be. In our lives, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is revealed two ways. The Lordship of Jesus is revealed in our life two ways. One of them I've already shared with you. What is it? Humility and brokenness. Oh Lord, is it me? Lord, if it is me, please help me. I don't want to fall into sin. I know how prone I am. Lord, strengthen me. That is the man who walks with Jesus. Humility. The second is this. A fervent desire to obey God's word. The mark of the lordship of Jesus Christ is just comes from a, a fervent desire to do God's will. And there's a transformation in our life that begins when that happens. Supernaturally, we begin to look more like Jesus. We... we Realize, Lord, your love is amazing. Your uncaused love for me. I was arguing and thinking all about myself and you come and wash, me at my, wash my feet and you just bring me so graciously without finding fault, without making me feel like a loser. You just pick me up and get me right back on the right path. Lord, your love for me is amazing. And because I'm so in awe of your love for me, Lord, oh, now I want to walk in your ways. Will you help me? And that is the sign of the lordship of Jesus in our life. Suddenly, his will becomes our will because we're so moved by his love that we just want to love what he loves. And we just want to value what he values. Uh, and, and, and we see the wisdom and the profound life-giving uh, uh, attributes that come from it. And we go, Lord, I just want to walk with you. And you know what happens when we do? When, when we suddenly have this desire to just, I want to obey God, I want to please God, something happens supernaturally, not by our ability, by his ability, supernaturally, our life begins to change. And our life begins to look more like Jesus. And we start actually doing the things that Jesus would do. And we become the body of Christ, the people of Christ, right? The people of Christ. We're reflecting him. Jesus said it this way in John 13 on your screens. He said, you call me teacher and Lord. Read with me. You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Don't miss the forest through the trees. The goal is not feet washing. The goal is loving others like he loves you. When you're thinking about yourself, Jesus came along and said, hey, let me serve you. And it made you go, oh my gosh, I'm so selfish. Without ever calling you out. 
This week, I had someone who, uh, who I love dearly really hurt me, uh, really hurt me. And I was mad. I was hurt. I was wounded. And I picked up the phone, and I started to call, and I'm like, nah. And I wanted to say some things, man. I was hurt. Someone I dearly love. And then I wanted to pick up the phone and text. And I'm like, okay, well, I'll put my... <laughs> and I thought, uh, that's not a good idea. And by God's power and grace alone, I did not make the call and I did not send the text. And I was praying on it and, and this person hurt me so bad and, I, and then I had this thought and I thought, Oh my gosh. Lord, how my sin has so radically hurt you. So many times I've been totally insensitive to you. And it moved me and I broke down. And I said, Lord, I'm so sorry. I began to weep. And forgiving this person suddenly seemed so small. And I just thought, I, looked, I started looking at my sin differently. I'd thought about the things I had done this week. And I thought, oh my gosh. Lord, I don't want to do that against you. I know how this hurt me when this person was so insensitive to me. And they were. And, and I know how it hurt me. And I thought, I can't even imagine. What, you bless me and you're doing this for me. And I go and do this. Like, oh Lord, I'm so sorry. And it made forgiving that person seem so small. And I was able to wash their feet with no, just no big deal. Jesus' lordship isn't revealed in our life by spirituality and hyper-spirituality. It's revealed by brokenness and humility and a desire to just want to obey Jesus and do his ways because his ways are so good. And this is, what his, this is his transforming work in our life. But there are those who profess Jesus and yet Jesus is not the Lord of their life. Judas was one of them. Judas was still the Lord of his life. Jesus would say, why do you call me master and Lord? And yet you don't care about the things I care about. You don't do what I say. Yeah, that's not a real relationship with Jesus. Uh, one of my sons went to a 4th of July gathering and there was a party there and there was these super hyper-spiritual so-called Christians there and they were drunk as a skunk. And someone there was sick, uh, had an illness. And in their drunken stupor, guess what they decided to do? Come and pray over that person and command the demons out of them and the illness out of them and command healing in Jesus' name. Radical hyper-spirituality radically marring the person of Jesus. Not their Lord. Their flesh is their Lord. I want you to know Judas was at every church service, but his life was unchanged. Jesus was not his Lord. Who was Judas's Lord? Judas. And because of that, he betrays Jesus. Ever been betrayed by someone you love? Ever been betrayed by someone you really care a lot about? Jesus has. 
And Judas callously maligns his most trusted friend, his mentor, his teacher, his creator, the lover of his soul. He betrays the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who had come to give him salvation as a free gift. As we look at this, we think, Jesus, why did you choose one in your core group uh, to betray you? And I'm sure there's a myriad of sovereign reasons. But one of them, no doubt, being because when you love people, you will at times get deeply hurt by them. Love anyway. It's worth it. And when you pour yourself into others, they will at times wrong you and use you. Pour into them anyway. It's worth it. You see, love is powerful. And even though it deeply hurts at times, it is life-giving. It is meaningful. And love wins over selfishness. It is way more powerful than selfishness. And if you refuse to do it because at times you get hurt, you yourself will be the loser. Jesus loved and those he loved, he loved to the very end. And there he sits with his betrayer and says, it's you. Rabbi, is it I? You said it. Are you sure you want to do this? And even now, Judas, it's not too late. You can, you can repent. Betray Jesus no longer. And having just washed the disciples' feet and served them all a, a Passover meal with, a, you know, with his betrayer at hand, Jesus shows us how far his love will go. Uh, let's uh, finish up with this passage. I'm going to ask Kyle and the worship team to come up, and we're gonna, I'm going to ask the men to get ready to pass out the communion elements. And look at verse 26. And as they were eating, that's eating the Passover meal, Jesus took the bread. What bread is that? The unleavened bread. The unleavened Passover bread. Leaven in the Bible, a picture of sin. All of the leaven driven out of the house at Passover, a picture of what Jesus does for us on the cross. And he takes that unleavened bread. He blesses it and he broke it. And he gives it to each of the disciples even to Judas. And he says, take and eat, for this is my body. My sinless life is going to be broken for you on the cross. I'm going to die for you. Verse 27. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks. And he gave it to them, saying, drink from it. Read these words with me. Drink from it. How many of you? All of you. Judas, not too late. Not too late. Drink from all of you. And the offer goes out to all, even to those who are at the time betraying Jesus. They can repent. They can be saved. For this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. There are those who teach a transubstantiation that we're actually eating the blood. It wasn't Jesus' actual body. He was right there. It wasn't his actual blood. He was right there. But he was telling us something. He was saying, listen, 
I'm giving my life for you. And I want you to always remember my uncaused love for you in this, my last supper. And I'm spilling my blood for you. And I want you to remember that I loved you enough to take all the punishment of, my, of your sin upon my own back. Oh, that we would comprehend the love of Jesus Christ. This is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, shed for many for the remission of sin. 250,000 lambs being offered, offered. They couldn't forgive one single sin. But this lamb can forgive all sin. Verse 29, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. Oh, I wish time would allow us to talk about that. And when they had sung a hymn, when they had sung in worship and praise to God, they went out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and taken to his death. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. Thank you.